The uh, foundational text for our current series is Psalm 90, verse 12. Psalm 90, verse 12, which simply says this, Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And the context for, for that verse, from the rest of Psalm 90, is, is this, in verses 1 to 6, you see a referencing of God's eternal nature, that God is from everlasting to everlasting. In verses 7 to 12, they speak of God's anger, anger that should consume us, anger that should terrify us because of our sin, which is all revealed, it says in verse 8, in the light of his presence. And the rest of that psalm continues to encourage us to contemplate our fragility to recognize that life is brief, to recognize that our deaths could be at any moment. And when we contemplate the fragility of life and the brevity of life and the fact that our deaths could really be at any moment, we realize we need his compassion, verse 13, his mercy, verse 14, his power to live. We're calling on God to be the one that gives glory and beauty to life's that lack glory and beauty. In verse 17, we're asking God to establish the work of our hand. And so the scripture is telling us, as we do that, as we reflect on the brevity of our lives, we reflect on our mortality, that we don't live forever in these bodies, that we maybe gain a heart of wisdom because we recognize that our days are numbered. We recognize that there is an end point. We recognize that there is an end date. And even though life doesn't always end well with the opportunity, I guess the, 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 the opportunity to have a moment on our deathbed when we are able to reflect on our lives. Because sometimes life is taken from us in an instant and we don't have that moment. But if we had the opportunity on a deathbed, knowing that our death was imminent, what would you think of as you reflected on your life? As you looked back on your life, would there be relationships that you wished you'd invested more in? Would there be relationships you'd wish you'd invested less in? Would there be career choices that you wish you had made? Would there be career choices you regret making? Would there be life decisions you wish you'd made? Would there be pathways you'd wanted to walk in, but you didn't have the faith or the courage to walk in? Were there things that you wish you'd done that you just didn't do? If we had a moment to reflect on our deathbed, on our lives. And the interesting thing is that Psalm 90 is saying this, that we should think about our death. We should think about the fact that there is a finality, there is an end point, there is an end date. And as we do so, we grow in wisdom, we grow wiser to live. The Psalm is encouraging in us to do is to live better lives now. So think about your death, think about the fact that there's an end point, and because we're thinking about that, because rather than us ignoring it, we're reflecting on it. We're recognizing that it's a day that is inevitable, that it's a day that's coming. But what if we went further than that? What if we went further than thinking just about the moment of our death? What if we started to think about the things that death is a doorway to? About what happens next? How then might we gain more wisdom? Hebrews 9:27. Romans 2, 12, 16, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and Revelation 20, we get this understanding, and I had to read those texts to put it all together into one thing. We understand that after our one physical death, the Bible says we're destined to die once. There's no 
do-over. There's no repeat. Even if Hollywood tells you that there's a repeat. Even if we think that we're going to get a chance to do better the next time. The Bible says we're destined to die once. And after our one physical death, the scripture says the Lord Jesus Christ will do what? He will judge us. All our secrets. Every one of them. There's nothing that will be hidden from his sight, and he's going to judge us, the scripture also says, according to our works, by the things written in his book of life. It seems from the scripture that there's a different judgment for the non-Christian and the Christian, but Jesus' judgment nevertheless. According to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 to 15, it seems that the question for every Christian, everyone that believes in him, is this, is, 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 is there going to be work that we have done that when the fire tests the work of our lives, that there will be something that we still have left for a heavenly reward of some kind? But if instead of just stopping with thinking about the moment of our death and what happens next and thinking about the judgment that is inevitable for all of us, we go further than that, we begin to think then about heaven, maybe, and the other place called, that we don't talk about a lot today, do we? We're just not, we just don't talk about it a lot. And you, you all know what a, a pendulum is, right? Everybody knows what a pendulum is. Everybody's seen in a clock. I, 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 I found one on Amazon. Everybody's seen these things that swing in clocks. And I'm not trying to hypnotize you all. <laughs> but the point is, I think there's been a pendulum swinging church that all the way up here, we used to just talk about hell, fire, brimstone, the inevitability of death. The reason you've got to receive salvation for Jesus now is because you might get outside and get hit by a car, which is actually true. But when the pendulum swings away from that place, when preachers preach sermons that go on forever, and we sing, pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. We sing just as I am, without one plea, or that thy blood was shed for me just as I am, and we do verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 40 and 45, and the preacher goes on and on and on and says, come now, come now, come now. But we're far away also from the sermons that Jonathan Edwards preached in 1741, the sinners in the hand of, hands of an angry God. How many of you have heard of that sermon? It's a sermon that says that humanity is standing on this, this steep precipice and our feet are slipping into hell and the only thing that stops us slipping into hell is God. That at any moment if God removed his grace, we would fall into this hellish pit. And so immediately we've got to call on God to rescue us and to save us. When? Now. But we're far from that. We don't preach sermons like that anymore. So the pendulum swings and it swings, and it swings, and it swings. And it's not swinging like this. It's just swung all the way over here that we don't talk about it at all anymore. When we don't talk about it anymore, what happens is we give ground over to the world. And the world inhabits the space that the church vacates. And when we're over here, we don't talk about hell or heaven. Or when we talk about it, we only talk about it in an emotionless way because God forbid that we should be passionate and say, come to Jesus now because it's really important. And it really matters, and that your life is brief, and that your life could end any moment. And if you don't come to Jesus now, you may regret it later. We don't say that anymore, because we think they used to say it too much. And so we've come to this place where the swing of the pendulum is all the way over here. And who it takes the space from us? The movie theaters take the space from us. The book writers take the space from us. The songwriters take the space that the church should inhabit. And so we yield ground to false narratives. In TV and film, we have stories like Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Who's seen that? 
right? Who's seen the movie Hellraiser? You don't need to raise your hand. Who's seen Constantine? Who's seen the thing called The Good Place? Who likes Stranger Things? You see, the thing about Stranger Things is the problem with it is that it tells us that this upside-down world, that alternative dimension that exists in parallel to our world is terrible. It's a bad place, but you can escape. And you can overcome it. And the weird thing is that that's a narrative that is a false narrative, but it's inhabited in a space that the church has vacated. And heaven is just misused in songs. Songs for a pleasant, euphoric, romantic, even a sexual experience. And so we sing about dancing cheek to cheek. I'm in heaven. Because we're just dancing cheek to cheek. Bruno Mars is upset that he's been locked out of heaven. <laughs> Belinda Carlisle, heaven is a place on earth. Brian Adams, others. The space that we've vacated, they're filled with junk, falseness, emotion, because we've sucked the emotion out of speaking about topics that the church should not be afraid of. And hell has become a euphemism for something Terrible, an analogy for something terrible. We speak of hell when we talk about bad weekends with in-laws, <laughs> right? We speak about hell when we talk about having a bad week at work. We speak about hell when we talk about the terrible prison experience where you're afraid to keep your, so you're afraid to close your eyes at night because of what horrors may happen to you and the violence that is perpetual and constant in those places. We speak about hell as being the World War I beach, or the beach in Normandy, or one of those beaches in the Pacific. We call that hell. We call hell being trapped in a burning building. And you see how, because the church doesn't talk about it anymore, there are all kinds of conceptions about what hell is. There are all kinds of misunderstandings about what it is and what heaven is. And so today, I want us to reclaim a little bit of that space. Because we're contemplating our death, which is inevitable. We're contemplating judgment, which is inevitable. We're contemplating standing before Jesus and him exposing every single thing we think we've hidden from our families, our friends, and the rest of society. Jesus sees it all, knows it all, and is going to judge us for it. Jesus is going to judge the Christian and he's going to say at the end of the day, what did you do for me that was work that stacks up or you're just being saved by the skin of your teeth because there really wasn't anything that amounted to anything. And in view of that and in view of what comes next and this sense in which there is a hell and a heaven awaiting, let's see what the Bible says those two things are. Let's start with hell first. Jesus speaks about it, it seems, more than anybody else. Isn't that amazing? Because we don't talk about it because we think it's something that we shouldn't talk about, but Jesus talked about it a lot. The one that the scripture says has the keys to death and hell speaks about this place called hell a lot. In Matthew 13, verses 41 to 42, he describes it as a fiery furnace where all those who aren't fit for the kingdom of God are going to be cast into. Matthew 25, verse 41, it says it's an everlasting, unquenchable fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a place of eternal torment that there is no escape from. This is not the upside-down place that we can find little ways out of. It's eternal once you're there. Luke 16, verses 19 to 31 says this. It's a place of weeping, extreme anguish, 
They use the term of the gnashing of teeth. I think that's really trying to describe that it's so bad that your teeth are grinding so tight that it's terrible. It's the worst thing you could imagine, the worst thing you could ever experience. It's just that. And so Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, we shouldn't fear those that can kill our bodies. Why be afraid of those that can just kill this tent, this temporary thing, this body? Instead, we should fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In that place, the fiery furnace, the everlasting, unquenchable fire. And Revelation 21.8 adds, the lake which burns with fire and brimstone is the second death. So after our natural deaths, there is another one. Hell is real, Jesus says. Hell is eternal, Jesus says. But the good news is hell is avoidable. Think about this. Hell is avoidable. Jesus, God in his goodness, has described to us a place that we don't have to inhabit. He's prepared a place. Think about what God has done. The goodness of God is God's prepared a place to lock away for all eternity all the evil in the world. You think of all the evil there is in the world. Jesus is saying, I've prepared a place to put it all and to put there the one who's causing it all, Satan and all his angels, they're going to this place. You don't have to be there with them. This is the gospel. And so we don't talk about it because we think it's just negative, but that's a good thing because he's saying that all the worst things in the world you think of, I've prepared an eternal place to rid you of them, to rid the world of them, to make the world over in you and to start again and to lock them all in there so you never have to deal with them again. They don't touch you anymore. You don't want to go there. I'm calling you instead towards heaven, the home that he invites us to join him in. Heaven where Jesus says he's prepared mansions for us. Real houses? I don't know. Was he speaking instead about these marvelous spiritual habitations that are going to be the resurrection bodies that we have that are so glorious that they eclipse the biggest, most profoundly built house on the earth, that. So we spend all our time on earth concerned about building these, these, these edifices and these big houses that are going to fall down. And Jesus has said, I've prepared an eternal home for you. A mansion just for you where we will dwell with him. John 14, two to three tells us that heaven is filled with peace, with joy, with praise, filled with good things. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. Revelation 21, 4 tells us. So imagine that. Inhabit in a space where there is no more plague, no COVID-19 or 20 or 21 or 22 ever again. No hunger. No famine. No tornadoes that come through in the middle of the night and wipe out civilization in parts of our world. No floods, no hurricanes, no gun violence, no murder, no crime whatsoever in heaven. No racism. In fact, the exact opposite of that. Instead, every tribe, every nation, every tongue in harmony and in unity. A place where nothing rots away. Nothing wastes, nothing is stolen, Matthew 6, 19 to 20 tells us. The book of Revelation tells us that heaven has gates made of pearls. They didn't make that up in the movies. Streets of gold, Revelation 21, 21. 
walls and foundations filled with the most precious stones, Revelation 21, 19 to 20. And it says, even the animals are going to be at peace. Isaiah 11, 6 to 7 says, the wolf is going to lie down with the lamb and the leopard with the goat and the calf with the lion. And you realize all of you have watched violent nature documentaries as we were doing the other day where the lion is chasing it and the polar bear is covered in blood because it's eaten. I don't know what it's eaten. None of that. The whole of creation, the trees, the grass, the oceans, the weather systems that are messed up. You see, who messed it up? God didn't mess it up. We messed it up. Our ancestors, Adam, Eve, messed up in the garden, introduced evil to the world. And God, thank God, has a plan to rid the world of the mess that we made and has created a place to lock it all away in for all eternity. And he says to us, even on this day, that's not the place for you. Instead, I've prepared a place that is called heaven. And so just as hell is real, And hell is eternal, but hell is avoidable. Heaven is real. Heaven is eternal. And heaven is attainable because of Jesus. Now reflect on that for a moment. Just pause. Think through to the end of your lives. Think through to the things that you may be wishing you'd paid more attention to. Think through to whatever thoughts you may have about what's about to happen next when you close your eyes finally in the sleep of death and the judgment that awaits us all and the eternal choices that we make today. You see, Jesus says this in John 11, 25 to 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they may die, they shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And so the scripture, when it's telling us to do our best to lift Jesus high, is saying, make Jesus the priority about all things. Make Jesus the preeminence in all things. Tell the world about him. It says that because we understand how fearful and awesome God is, we should convince the world of this. We shouldn't be complacent about it and have a sense in which I prayed my prayer whenever I prayed my prayer and I'm in the kingdom, I think, anyway. I don't know, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. And I'm not really even convinced about it. It's ridiculous because at the end of the day, if you see a good movie, if you go to a good restaurant, what do you do? You tell everybody about it. You go on Yelp. You tweet, you text, you, you, you call someone and say, I just saw a great movie last night. But far better than the best movie you've ever seen, far better than the best restaurant you've ever been to, wherever it is in town, whatever the heck it is they're cooking, right? However expensive it is, heaven beckons us all. Is this how we live today? Because I think sometimes we've, you know, I grew up here. I grew up with this, this hellfire and brimstone kind of message. I was talking to Ali about it earlier. She said that the church that she grew up in, they're still here. Every sermon, the baptistry is filled. Every sermon, they appeal and say, come and be, believe and be baptized. They don't even want to separate belief from baptism because somehow they, they say that these two things are connected. Believe and be baptized because ultimately that's what Jesus said. If you believe, come and be baptized. There shouldn't be a one-year, two-year, three-year, four-year, two-week separation between the fact that I believe and there's water. Let's go do it today. It's how we used to preach. But today, we're here. I think it's wrong. It's wrong. 
We're emotional about everything else. We're emotional about our sports teams. We're passionate about our cars. (laughs) Our house. The clothes. Our vacations. Everything we have. And we're passionless about the things that matter most. Whoever believes in me, though they may die, they shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never not die. Do you know when Jesus speaks those words? He speaks them to Martha outside Lazarus' tomb before he raises them. And so Jesus was, he was put his action where his mouth was. There was a situation when they bring the paralytic to Jesus and they lower him through the roof. And Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And everyone mocks because they think it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. And so he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk. And so Jesus is just doing the same thing here. He's backing it up. He says, whoever believes in me, though they die, they will live. And what's the next thing he does? He calls Lazarus out of the tomb. Think of that demonstration if you're walking with him. Because we hear these words. And Christians, we have to believe these words. But because I've never seen someone walk out of a tomb, is there anyone who's seen anyone walk out of a tomb? Is there anyone ever seen anyone get off a hospital bed that was clinically dead for a long time? And they'd pulled out all the life support and then turned all the machines off and suddenly they reanimate. I've never seen that. But I believe it. And this is the faith that we have been called to. Jesus is life. Jesus is our way to paradise. And in the presence of Jesus, death is just sleep. Death is just sleep. It's weird, isn't it? I think the Bible calls us to stack all these things up, to fill our hearts with them. So we don't know how the ends of our days are going to be. We don't know whether it's going to be sudden or we don't know whether it's going to be prolonged. We don't know whether we're going to be in our right minds. We don't know whether our bodily functions are going to fail and other people are going to have to be looking after us and doing things for us that are too embarrassing to talk about today. But maybe you can stack these things up in your heart. Maybe your family and friends are going to be filled with these things that they can encourage you in in those days. That heaven is real. Jesus is life. He's our way to paradise. And when we close our eyes in death, in the presence of Jesus, it's not eternal. It's just sleep. Philippians 1, 20 to 24, Paul says this, it's good to live for Jesus, but it's also good to die and be with him. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Christians, we've got to fill our hearts with this. Life is precious, life is precious, life is precious. I want to cling to it with everything I have. Paul's saying, no, it's good to live but it's also good to be in the presence of Jesus. The scripture tells us also in 2 Corinthians verses 5 to 8 and 8, 5, 8, to be absent from this temporary earthly body is to be present with Jesus. How quickly? I don't know. So I've sometimes contemplated that we're locked in this sort of time thing. If we're locked in time, we don't understand the immediacy of being present with Jesus. But if at the moment of our death, time breaks open into eternity, how soon is that? It's instant. 
When Jesus says to the thief on the cross, you are next to me bound by time, but today, at the moment of your death, you'll be with me in paradise. I wonder whether this is the experience. And Jesus is the one who speaks with authority because he knows what he's talking about. And Paul speaks with authority because the scripture says that he's been caught up into the, into the third heaven. Right? I don't know where the third heaven is. Does that mean that there are two others? I've heard people articulate that, that there are three heavens. Some people have said there's seven. doesn't matter how many there are. There is one, at least, that you and I can all go to. It's all we have to celebrate and rejoice in. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this, that our resurrection bodies are better than these failing, creaky knee, creaky elbow, creaky shoulders. I'm fed up of it, right? I ain't that old yet. Those of you who are part of the soul food kung fu class with me on a Saturday morning know how much I complain that my hips hurt and I can't kick up here anymore and I can't brush my teeth with my feet out here in some elaborate kick. I can barely move some weeks. And this shoulder hurts. Just as this one gets better, that one's gone. And then this finger and that finger and that. God is telling us something that these bodies are temporary. They're failing. But he's prepared us to leave these earthly tents, a tent, something that you put up, Maybe you don't live there forever. As soon as he uses the word a tent, get the sense that God is telling us that this is an earthly, temporary habitation as we're bound in time. And the second that time breaks open at our death, immediately in the presence of Jesus, I like the sound of that, don't you? Resurrection bodies better than these. That's why when I think he's talking about mansions, he's talking about resurrection bodies. I can't prove that. I don't need no house when my body's perfect. Seriously, why do we need a house to shelter me when my body is perfect? Is there rain in heaven? Is there cold weather in heaven? I hope not. <laughs> bodies that don't fail but are perfect. Bodies that are not, not mortal but immortal. They're not weak or natural, but they're powerful and spiritual. They're not dishonoring. Think how many times your body just lets you down, embarrasses you. And she regret it, this existence. No more of that. Honorable and glorious, no longer locked in time, but free in eternity. And because of Jesus, those resurrection bodies and the fact of resurrection on that last day when the trumpet sounds and in the twinkling of an eye, which seems to tell me that it's just quick. Scripture tells us the dead will rise first. And then those of us who are still alive will be caught up in the air together with the dead to be with him forever. And so what we're doing on this morning is just swinging that pendulum back to a central place. We're not preaching hellfire and brimstone, though there is a hell. We're not refusing to talk about it and sapping it of emotion so that the world can inhabit the space with lies and falsehoods about things that you can break free of and that are overcomable. It's not true. Satan and his angels are going to be locked in that place forever. And I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. Because it's basically taking every worst thing in the world and putting it into one place. That's worse than the worst prison. That's worse than the World War I beach. Also, the World War I trains. That's worse than the World War II Pacific beach. That's worse than being locked in a burning building because you are locked in a burning house. I don't want to be there. No one should want to be there. Instead, he beckons us to heaven. Not the wage that sin pays, which the scripture says is death, but the gift of God, which is eternal life.
So this is the question today. Will you believe in him? I make an assumption every Sunday that 100% of the people here are Christians. I don't think that's true. I don't know that that's possible. If it is, then that's great. But if you're not a Christian here today, if you've never said, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I confess my sin. Jesus, I recognize that you're my only hope. Jesus, I don't like the sound of this hell place. I like the sound of the heaven place. And I recognize that you've made a way for me to be there. Then will you on this day make a decision for him? I was contemplating what this moment's like. In my church, what we would have done is we would have started singing. And we would have kept going. We would have kept going until the very last person who was here walked forward. I don't care whether you walk forward or not. I'm just asking you whatever you have faith for. If you have faith to raise a hand and say on this day I make a decision for Jesus, raise your hand. If you have faith to say I on this day make a decision for Jesus and I'm going to do it by standing up, stand up. If you on this day say, I have faith to make a decision for Jesus, I'm going to come forward and I'm going to kneel on one of those things that we've put there so people can come kneel on them, you come do that. If your faith says, I can't do it in front of everybody, but I'm going to go and tell one of the prayer team that I made a decision for Jesus on this day and I said, enough of this, then do it, just do something. And don't leave it to tomorrow because you do not know that there is one. Which is how they used to talk, but it's still true today. And I know we're stacking baptisms up for Easter. But I'm going to say to the Christian who hasn't been baptized, why not? It's a call to obedience to Jesus. Jesus says, believe and be baptized. There's no separation of those two things. If you say, I believe in Jesus, but you haven't been baptized, why haven't you been baptized? What's stopping you? Just like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, there's water. If you want to be baptized today, Come tell me you want to be baptized today. I made no plans for this. I don't have a backup of clothes. Anna can go get me backup clothes from home. Some of your friends can go get you backup clothes from home while you take the step of faith, which is to believe and be baptized when? Tomorrow? Is there one? We don't know. Easter Sunday, we're hoping for it, right? We're praying that there's going to be Easter Sunday. Jesus might come tomorrow morning. We plan and hope, and the scripture says, and we're going to start a sermon in James a little bit. One of the things it says is, I shouldn't be so presumptuous to say that in this day I'm going to do this, on this day I'm going to do this, and this day in three years I'm going to go on vacation to this place. God willing, we should add, because we don't know that this is my last minute. So if this was your last minute, believe in Jesus. When? Today. Make your decision. If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, today, I urge you, I beg you, Make a decision. And if you've checked the I believe in Jesus box, Christian, and if you've checked the I've been baptized box, Christian, but you settled there, that's not good enough either. It's not just about getting into the kingdom by the skin of my teeth. There's a world that doesn't know. The fact that we will all stand before Jesus and he's going to say, what work did you do for me, Christian? And then the fire starts. I don't know what that feels like. And it begins to burn through the things that I said I did for him. And it's like, okay, well, that really wasn't for you. We should have things left that stand the test of fire. And Jesus says, my servant, well done. Well done. So three things. And we're going to shift to communion in a minute. And I'm going to call the band to come back up now, please. 
I'm going to read the text that leads us through communion. And as you go to the communion stations on the left or the right or the rear, I want to ask you today to make some kind of decision, if you haven't, to believe in Jesus. In your seat, raise your hand, stand, come forward. Christian, if you believe in Jesus, you've not been baptized, raise your hand, stand, come forward, tell someone. If the Lord is saying today is the day, let's do it today. If he's saying you can wait till Easter Sunday, God willing, let's wait till Easter Sunday. But if you're a Christian and you've done all those things, here's the commitment I want to ask you to make. Will you live your life for him? 100%. Not 98%, 99%, not a little bit, not, a, not, not in the middle, but full on. We're going to spend more time talking about this next week as we look at Jesus in Gethsemane and as he begins to approach his death and he says, not my will, but your will in that moment. And then he recognizes that God is calling him on to a life that means he's going to live God's will in that moment. And I think Jesus is simply just reflecting the prayer that he's prayed every day, not my will, but yours today, not my will, but yours tomorrow, not my will, but yours. And whatever it is you want, I'm going to do that. That's what it means to be Christian. That's what it means to live a life in obedience, is to say that I know I want this, and I know I want to go here and do this and have these things, but you say this, I choose that. So I hope that's clear. If you're not a Christian, today's the day. If you haven't been baptized, today can be the day. And if you're a Christian, today's the day that I ask you to recommit your life to Him. 100% fully because we're thankful from the hell that he saved us from and the heaven that he's beckoned us to. And we want to be his mouthpiece, his hands, his feet to tell the world who doesn't know about him. As we move to communion, let me read these words and then I'm going to let you in your own time just have a moment with God. Ben and I will be here. The prayer team are going to be on the left, on the right, and the rear. You can come to anybody. Just ask us to help you in the commitment you've made and we'll work out what we do next. The Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me and in the same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes until he comes today make a decision